Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, we have Nijay Gupta as our guest to talk about his book, Tell Her Story, How Women Led, Taught, and Ministered in the Early Church. Nijay is a professor at New Testament of New Testament at Northern Seminary. He's one of my professors, and he's the author of many books. And you can follow him on Twitter at Nijay K. Gupta or read his blog at cruxsolablog.com. So, Nijay, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you. I've, I've listened to it, and I've been on it before, so it's fun to be with you again. Nijay is everywhere. He listens to everybody's podcast <laughs> and sees everybody's tweets. I don't know how he does it. <laughs> I'm an introvert, so I, I, I like to kick back and, and listen while I, while I do chores or play video games. Nice. Well, it is Women's History Month, the month of March, which is a time when we try to uncover the stories of the contributions of women that have been hidden, forgotten, or ignored, which I kind of have to say is the perfect time for releasing this book. I thought that was (laughs) very smart of whoever came up with that. Um, But in this book, you share the contributions of women to the planning, growth, and healing of the first Christian churches. So I guess I want to know, um, what motivated you to write this book, and what did you learn through the process of researching it? Yeah, you know, I I went through kind of a, a big uh, change in my perspective in seminary. Um, you know, I've, I've shared this story with a lot of students, probably with you, Laura, but um, mm-hmm. I was a big Piper Grudem fan going into seminary in the roaring early 2000s, and this was the heyday of... Piper Grudem. Um, I think the message I was set in college is these theologians are serious about God. And if you want to be serious mm-hmm. about God, this is what you read. This is who you follow. So I did. And um, I went into seminary and I actually wrote my first systematic theology paper on why women shouldn't be in ministry, oh. uh, why women shouldn't <laughs> be pastors. Because I wanted to toe the line of what would be respectable in that community. Yeah. Um, and I started to engage with female professors. I started to meet Master Divinity students like my wife, later to be wife, a- Amy. And um, and some of the assumptions I had started to break down. Like these women are liberal who are in the MDiv program. They don't they don't trust the Bible. They put their feelings and their agenda above Scripture. Um, so I, I started to interact with people like my wife, Amy, and others, and it, I felt this conviction, I'm going to have to really study this thing in depth. So I spent a couple years studying mm-hmm. it, and I got to be a TA for Catherine Krager, who was the founder of Christian Biblical Equality. And I got to say, it's not that I came to all, all these aha moments, but I kind of see the, the complementarian position as what I call an edifice. And over my research, their points started to erode. So, for example, primogeniture, Adam was born first, privilege of the firstborn. Um, You know, scholars like R.T. France and others started to to remind me that God sometimes chooses the (laughs) lastborn. There's all these arguments and and things that started to kind of fade away. So, Mm -hmm. I came to, actually, I wrote my last systematic theology paper on why women must be pastors. Um, (laughs) So, I really came full circle there. It was supposed to be a 15-page paper. It was 26 pages. Wow. Um, 
And I feel bad for my professor. Sorry, Dr. Lentz, but um, I was going through something. <laughs> um, so I became a supporter of women. I didn't really do much writing on it, um, but I did write a couple of articles. And one of my, about three or four years ago, one of my friends, Joey Dotson at Denver Seminary, he took a picture of a student paper uh, page and he sent it to me. And it said, as feminist scholar Nijay Gupta says. <laughs> and I told, I laughed and I told Joey, I got to earn that. I got to earn that label. So I ended up writing a blog series called Why I Believe in Women in Ministry. And this was two, three years ago. And it just took off. Like I just wrote one post and it got read by thousands upon thousands of people. Within a week, I think it was like 30, 40,000 views. Wow. Um, so I was expecting to write two or three posts, end up writing 22, tw 22 or 23 posts within maybe a month. Wow. And I just sense that even though there's a lot of, uh, material out there on women in, in ministry, there can never be enough. <laughs> That's what I learned. Because and, and what and so you're asking the question where this book come from. Um, publishers asked me, do you want to write something? At first I said no because Scott has great stuff out there and Lynn Kohick and Linda Belleville and Cindy Westfall. I mean there's plenty of stuff out there. But mm -hmm. what I realized is a lot of the great stuff is in academic really yeah. dense academic stuff like Richard Bauckham's Gospel Women or Lynn Kohick's uh, Women in the Role of the Early Christians, which is pretty dense. I thought I could write something that a lay person, what I call a nerdy lay person, quote unquote, a nerdy lay person could read in two or three sittings. That was my vision. And so I started to work on it. And what I, re what I ended up focusing on is I don't want to focus on the prohibition passages. I want to focus on the women that actually did ministry. That'll start our conversation. Yeah, yeah that's good. I, and I think that's the, the secret here is the technical stuff is valuable for the debates at ETS that seem to go on endlessly. And uh, with there's never going to be a resolution, of course, because uh, different people are talking. But it, it, is, the, it, it is so important to, uh, to write for the people who are the ones who need to be persuaded yeah. right. and are persuadable. And uh, I cannot tell you the number of students, women students mostly, at Northern Seminary who've told me, you know, it, you know, not when they came, but someday in passing at lunch, that they read Blue Parakeet mm -hmm. and it changed their mind. And I thought, you know, that, that's good. I mean, I'm really glad that I wrote that, but that's not heavy duty. Uh, but it is. It, that, that's what I think is going to be the great value for your book is it will be accessible to people. And it's the kind of book I used to give, I don't know, have you read R.T. France's little book, Women in Ministry? Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's an old little book, and that was very accessible to people, yeah. and partly because it was so thin. Hmm. So I, I want to commend you. Anijay, uh, tell us, you know, my idea would be to sit here for two hours and you could tell us <laughs> about different women. But um, tell us about one or two of the women that you studied uh, so that our listeners could say, this is what this book is, you know, it's it, what this book is about. Yeah. But I always ask it if you think the woman in Revelation 12 is at least partly Mary, but no, <laughs> I, do, I do think it's Mary, but um, no, I, you know, what's interesting is I start off the book by saying when I was growing up, you know, when I was a teenager, if you ask me who are the important women in the Bible, I could name Mary, the mother of Jesus. 
Um, I could name Mary Magdalene, and I could probably name maybe maybe Priscilla. Um, but what's interesting is in a short 200-page book, um, you don't find really robust treatments of Phoebe. There's been all this scholarship on Phoebe and all this discussion about how important she is, which isn't obvious to people reading through Romans 16 usually. And then Junia, nope. there's been all this scholarship on Junia. Again, Romans 16, very few people talk about Junia. So when I was pitching this to IVP, I said, um, I actually find very little scholarship on Priscilla, Prisca Priscilla, that isn't in academic articles that are hard mm -hmm. to find, that isn't in dissertations, which are hard to get a hold of. How does the seminary student find information on Priscilla? There isn't a ton out there, but I'm going to just do some kind of uh, lesser known figures really quick. One would be Damaris. I don't even think I knew the name Damaris before I started researching this book. She appears in the book of Acts. And so you have Paul give this speech to Mars Hill this, you know, philosophical community, and two people are mentioned as kind of responding to the gospel amongst a few others. One of Dionysius, the Areopagite, uh, and then you have Damaris, who's a woman, and uh, Richard Bauckham once said about the gospels and acts, named people are important because they probably were people the readers knew over time as who became leaders. And so he says that about a variety of these. Why, why would the author, why would Luke name these two people um, when you didn't have to name anybody or you could name more people? And I like yeah, that. Yeah. And, and Alice Matthews picks up on this. I get it from Alice Matthews that Damaris probably became a leader. But what's interesting is what's this woman doing in this group of philosophical men? And some people think she's a prostitute, a courtesan. It doesn't say that. Um, and Craig Keener's pointed out that there were women philosophers out there. So it's fascinating to take someone like Damaris and say, part, part of the tagline of my book is we sit around saying, what can women do? And when we read the Bible, women are everywhere doing everything. And so yeah. I love to point out where women are in the quote unquote wrong place. The problem is it happens all the time in the Bible. And you're right. It doesn't, we don't often hear about why they were there. Uh, by the way, Alice goes to our church. Does she? Okay, she's a Gordon Conwell yeah. connection did from you, my did time. Did you at have Gordon her? Conwell. Did you ever talk to her when you were at Gordon? No, I'll tell you, uh, just honestly, I, because of the circles I ran in, I was scared off of taking female professors. So I didn't have a single female professor. Yeah. I, I don't know if that. she was there then. She is a wonderful person. She is. Yeah. I mean, I write. I bet I communicate with her on average several times a week. So, yeah. so she's, I just love Alice. And she also writes very accessible things. What about, you know, you wanted to tell us about Priscilla. Tell us a little bit about Priscilla. Yeah. So, you know, some, some things that people know is, you know, married to Aquila, tent maker, uh, and, and maybe that she taught Apollos, and we could talk about that later. What I find interesting is um, there's been a lot of conversation about name order. So she is mentioned before Aquila in a few of the New Testament texts. Not in all of them, but in enough of them that it kind of is attention-getting. Yep. And I've sure. always wondered throughout the years, is that really important? Is that something that readers would pick up on? I actually have found some articles from the classics world where they talk about this, and they say, yes, it would be significant. But scholars debate what the significance is. Um, Chrysostom actually talks about this. In one of his homilies, the strange part is it's in one of the homilies where the translation into English is not widely available. So I reached out to Margaret Mitchell 
because I had heard from somebody that she was working on this. And she sent me a Word doc pre-publication version of her translation of Chrysostom's homilies that aren't widely available. So I got this before the general public. And Chrysostom does have a homily just on Priscilla and Aquila, Roman 16, mm. where Chrysostom makes a point to say the name order proves that she was more involved in ministry than he was. He has his own mm. wording for that. But that's fascinating in and of itself. And and one of the other things I learned from this uh, research in this book was one scholar who will remain nameless, although I name him in the book, uh, he says uh, that we can kind of lower the importance of Priscilla because she corrects Apollos or teaches him in a, in a home. And yeah. there's a study by a woman named Emily Hemelrich on uh, Roman women. And, and uh, one thing that she says in that book, and she doesn't address New Testament stuff, but one thing she says is homes were public as well as private. So, for example, yeah. we're looking at each other on a screen right now, kind of like Zoom. And in a sense, my I'm in my home. It's private because, you know, I eat and sleep here. But it's public because you're looking into my house right now. And actually, Roman homes were like that. They had parts of the house that were not just public, but where you might conduct business. You'll receive strangers. You'll receive neighbors. And so this idea that the home is a quote-unquote private setting isn't accurate. But one of the things that Helmerick points out is this is where you keep your library. So actually, I said, this is kind of like her seminary library. She took him to the seminary <laughs> library. Um, this idea that, oh, it's a home, and that takes it out of the context of ministry, that's a profound misunderstanding of homes. It, it is. And it's an totally. ignoring of the fact that most churches met in homes. That's yeah. right. And most, and a lot of uh, teaching and public readings of, uh, you know, they would get together and have public readings of texts and letters. They yeah. did them at homes. I mean, yeah. they didn't have schools. Uh, to, well, there were some, but by and large, that's not where these things occurred. So, yeah, that is, it's amazing. And even no matter how you interpret the women of First Timothy 5, um, they seem to be going from home to home. Yeah. yeah. And that's where, that's where it happened. You know, they wanted to be in the room where it happened when people were making the big ideas. So I find it unbelievable when people make that statement, but I would like to know who said it. <laughs> You'll have to read the book. <laughs> um, the other thing I'll say that that struck me with Romans 16 in general is Paul is writing. I know you've done a lot of work on this, Scott. Paul is writing to a church that he has not visited before. You might even say a cluster of house churches. And so, um, and yet, his commendations for the women in Romans 16 are of the nature that he knows many of them personally. Yeah. How is that possible if he's in Corinth, Cancrea, and they're in Rome, and the only answer is they travel? Hmm. So what are they doing outside of their house? So like going back to John MacArthur, what are they doing outside their house? They're traveling for ministry, right? They're, and we learned this about Priscilla. Priscilla and Aquila are pulling up stakes and they're moving from city to city for ministry. And yeah. Paul even says they risk they risk their necks for me and all the Gentiles owe a debt to this couple. Yeah. So they are out doing stuff. What people have asked me, students have asked, what what exactly did they do? I'm not sure, but I'm wondering if they're bailing him out of jail. Um, they're working with um, you know authorities and magistrates to try to smooth things over. Um, again, this idea that 
men are meant to be doing all the leading and women are meant to be supporting and kind of behind the scenes or domesticated. Romans 16 does not bear that out. Yodian Syntyche, Philippians 4, does not bear that out. These women are out there. I'll mention another one, and I'm curious since you've written a commentary on Colossians, Scott. Nympha is someone we don't talk about, and I almost named that section the most important Christian you've never heard of. <laughs> because if I'm correct, and I think I am, but if I'm correct, she is evidence for a solo house church leader, a female solo. She's the only New Testament evidence for a female solo house church leader. Lydia could be, but that's not really stated. With Nympha, it's, it seems to be a certainty. Now, there's some question about whether it's a man or a woman. Um, I think the trans English translations we have are correct that it's a woman. But look at what Paul entrusts to her. Paul says, exchange letters with her and make sure. So she's actually the agent on that end. Let's say it's Laodicea. She's a Laodicean agent to receive this. I mean, she's a very important person. She's what I would think of as a pastor, right? Is that yeah. going too far, Scott? Well, I've heard your students say this to me. Do you think Nymph is a pastor? And I go, well. Well, I always say to them, what does Nije say? <laughs> <laughs> I, I say there are there were no pastors in the first century. There's yeah. an interesting study. Have you read this study by, um, I can't remember her name, but she wrote an essay studying the Christian letters from the Oxyrhynchus papyri, and she took stock of all the leadership terms used in the between 250 and 400 AD. And she says, and and I'm reading the list, and I'm telling you two things never show up. One of them may provoke you a little bit since you're Anglican. Priest never shows up and pastor never shows up. So as far as we yeah. can tell, based on our the first four centuries of Christianity, apostolic fathers as well, uh, pastor is not a term that was used. That doesn't mean you couldn't have a pastor, but it wasn't a, a common functional leadership title. Well, I, yeah, I would say, well, I would say it was a functional leadership, but as a title, uh, yeah, that's fine. Uh, no one's called a pastor. No one's called a pastor. Um, but Jesus is the good shepherd. The, um, um, but it is, uh, it is a function that I think clearly has to be assigned to both men and women in the New Testament. Of if you if you define it as spiritually caring, or just caring for people who are in a sense under your care, well then. There's all kinds of evidence for it. But Nympha, I think what you say about her as, as a so, you know, solo, it's just no one else is mentioned. Uh, we, that's what we got. And I, I would say clearly she's, she's a principal house uh, leader of a church. And, you know, then you have, was it 2 John, 3 John? Mm -hmm. The lady? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, I lean in that direction. I want to ask you, Scott, Roger Gehring wrote a monograph that I think is really profound, House Church Admission, where he argues that the early Christian, the apostles, they focused on ministering to householders, heads of household, yeah. like Stephanus, yeah. like Gaius, yeah. like Achaius, like Crispus, because, for a few reasons, because they would be... Uh, ready-made leaders. They already have leadership experience, right? And there's a similarity yep. between a householder in terms of managerial skills and an episkopos, right? He makes a direct yeah. connection because oh, yeah. episkopos, it literally means overseer or oversight. So that makes a whole lot of sense in the book of Acts. Um, so to me, uh, someone like Lydia, who is 
what we think of as a householder, she wouldn't be... Not, you know, this is interesting from the book of Acts. Paul goes in search for a group of uh, Jewish men. He finds these women. Lydia becomes a believer. Her whole household is baptized, right? Then the men go on these adventures and they get in some trouble. And then they get out. And where do they go? They go to Lydia's house. Why do they yeah. go to Lydia's house? Because she's the ready-made leader. She's already ready to go. Yeah. You know, the believers are gathering there. Peter gets out of prison. Where does he go? To the house yeah. of the mother of Mark. Um, interesting to me. Do you do you give credence to this idea that that episcopos would be a natural fit for householders? Well, yeah. I mean, episcopos then comes is also used in the Greek word for a steward, the economic steward of a village. This is in that really impossible to read book on uh, on bishop and elder. Uh, I can't remember his name. It was Campbell. Campbell wrote the one before it, but it's a big difficult book oh here it is the original bishops by stewart alistair stewart yeah i mean it's a really hard book to read but um i would connect the episcopos also to some kind of economic ministry of caring for the poor and that would fit with a householder mm -hmm. because a householder's got money and it's got people to live there so i fully embrace the idea that we should look to early christian leaders as household leaders in, in the Pauline mission. And and this idea yeah. that, you know, someone might say, oh, First Timothy, you know, talks about women, not allowed to have authority. We could talk about that if you want, authentic and all of that. But what someone pointed out is um, widows, young widows, are encouraged to be oika despateo, the despots, household despots, household <laughs> masters, masters of their yeah. own household. Yeah. And they are encouraged to marry, but but in the meantime, they're told to be, to be executive leaders of their household. Yeah, hmm. manager. They they call usually the NIV is to manage their own household. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's a high authority. That's what women term. did. Yeah, that's what women did in their home. They ran the home. Absolutely. Yeah. So you you have to and you see Paul you see Paul using these women. So it's it's like you, both of you. I've heard both of you say this. Like you've got to look at what was actually happening. Yes. And you see throughout the New Testament, Paul, but also Jesus, engaging with and using women to declare the gospel and to serve in these roles. But I do think this idea that Roman women were household managers is particularly important. And I think, Nijay, that's one thing that your work does that draws that out and highlights that if Paul was intentionally going after household managers men and women, it makes sense then why you have a Lydia and why you have a Nympha that Paul is then corresponding with um, and in, and engaging with in their leadership roles. And mm -hmm. and this is, it just gets at this hidden, hiddenness idea that I think you target in your book. Like these things are not unknown. It's just, we haven't been taught to recognize what's actually happening in the text. So we sort of need a guide and especially for people in our churches, our lay people, we need a guide that talks to them in their own language. Because um, for for much of my own experience, if you can read at the academic le level, you can read Cindy Westfall, okay. you can read Lynn Kohick, and you can find out these things. But then when you go back to your church and they can't read Cindy Westfall or Lynn Kohick, um, they're just taking your word for it. And especially as a female pastor... Um, you know, that's already fraught with, with some difficulty. So having books like these, I think, becomes incredibly helpful to say, 
hey, you know, this this is at your level. Go home and read this and find out what was actually happening in the church. These are not hidden women. You just haven't been taught how to recognize what's actually going on here. Yeah, I actually use the illustration of the book and movie Hidden Figures as kind of the entry point into the book because I get the question a lot, oh, if this feminist thing is a new thing, how can we trust it as <laughs> as you know part of uh, the biblical tradition? Isn't this just following civil rights? Isn't this just following um, modern modern ideological movements? And using the the idea of hidden figures, you know, which is we think of the space flight achievements happening through men, and then now we realize there were these great women. There's there's even headquarters have been renamed now because we realize we've willfully ignored these stories. But what I yeah. say in my introduction is the stories are there. Uh, you know, one thing that is just fun uh, just to think about the background in my book is I would be texting with Scott, you know, throughout my research, like, did you know this? He'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So a <laughs> uh, couple of things that were kind of mind blowing to me about the Roman world is, um, you know, a scholar named Richard Saller, uh, who says that um, about a third of all property in Rome was owned by women. Um, and another study talked about um, Roman Egypt, uh, which corresponded to many major cities, that one out of every households had a female head of household. Hmm. One of what? One, of, one, one out of every four households had a female. Four, huh? Yeah, female head of household. And I think Saller has said that that's similar to what happens in Rome as well. Wow. Um, so when you start to, and then I, after I wrote the book, after I published the, after the book was completed, I came across a statistic that about 30% of all women at any one point in time were single, either their husbands died or they weren't married yet, whatever the case, uh, they were single. And so you start to see a lot of these single women in the New Testament who are mm -hmm. doing a lot of important things. Like Phoebe, I, I presume, is a widow or a single. Uh, it doesn't have to be, but she seems to operate independently. Um, we have this ancient woman from Corinth named Junia Theodora, who's fascinating, and people have compared her to Phoebe. She's not a Christian, but she's a woman who you have a lot of information about through inscriptions, who has a lot of independent power. And she is a patron of many people, and she has people in her house, she gives money, she does all kinds of things. So the idea of a independent woman exercising a lot of social power was not unheard of and and there was a place for that in the roman world and i think we see in the church as well mm -hmm. very good yeah it's so fun to think about and i as you're talking about junia theodora she reminds me of lydia too like we have evidence that she's basically a businesswoman a first century roman businesswoman um that paul connected with and so it's just fun to see these things are happening. Um, they're happening in the context of the early church. And it's great that we are sort of shining a spotlight on these individuals and telling their stories um, because they're all right there in Scripture. Mm -hmm. um, and we just need to talk about it and, and find new ways to express it so we can understand um, how God is moving in the life of the church and to help us understand what that means for us. So I deeply appreciate both of you for your work in this area. I think it's incredibly helpful. Um, and I think it's helpful to revisit the history. So it's not a new thing that you guys are doing. All you're doing is uncovering uh, what has been done.
Well, Nijay's doing this more than I am. I, I asked what did women do, and I sketched some of that. But I think what you're emphasizing, Laura, and what Nijay is emphasizing is a stereotype about what women actually did in the ancient world doesn't match the social realities that we know of. That's right. right. And there were a lot of very active leadership women. And if 30%, I, I don't think I've ever heard this, but I, I did, I used to stand uh, at the street corner and wait for, I used to stand with Richard Saller in Cambridge and wait for our daughters to get out. They were in the same class in a school. So, but he was very young and I was very, I was doing my <laughs> PhD. Uh, he's a great scholar. But if 30% of households were run by women, then 30% of households are not only led by women, but these women have to become leaders in the community because they negotiate and work the business of the house. And all the houses that you see, the larger houses, not the smaller, poor places where tenements and apartment buildings, those houses uh, would have an opening to them. And by and large, it would be a business entry. And there'd be a business room in there and, you know, libraries, whatever else. So these women ran ran a business from their household and see them. So this, I think this can help transform what many people think about women in leadership and the stereotype, I'll just mention the complementarian theory of women, you know, being in the home and submissive to their husband. I think they just got to start reading some ancient texts mm -hmm. and realize this is just not true. And yeah. uh, so, uh, I mean, the women who it looks like are causing a little bit of trouble in some of the churches are not causing trouble because they're being submissive. It's they're out there doing things that Paul doesn't like. And he doesn't say they shouldn't be out there. Right. Yeah. You know, so they're out there because they're out there. That's what women were doing. So. And Gordon mm -hmm. Fee, I know we got to wrap up, but Gordon Fee makes a really important point about the household codes. Lynn Kohick does this as well more recently, that a female head of household would read that and shift all the priorities about the husband to herself. Yeah. So in, in terms of taking care of the slaves and the children, you know, everything she would naturally shift that to herself because she becomes she becomes head of house. Yeah. Um, so it's it's really about harmony. I like to explain those texts. They're about harmony. Uh, they're not about gender per se. And submission. And they're, yeah. yeah, they're not about dominance. Yeah. They're about harmony. That's right. Yeah, I think that's important. Oh my goodness, you guys, we could probably talk for two more hours. I mean, the, the fun thing to me, and I feel like I need to point this out, is this is in the New Testament. It's available. These stories are available. They're clear. Um, they're evident to be seen, but it's, they're in the Old Testament too. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and I think this is critical to state. Like God is not radically doing something new. This is a consistent treatment throughout scripture. It's, it's consistent treatment throughout the history of the church. There have always been women leading. Um, this is this is not something we just decided a few years ago, but this is this is something that is a consistent theme. Um, we just haven't always told the stories, and when sometimes when we have told the stories, we've told them incorrectly. So this is about recovering the truth of what God was up to. Um, 
so that we know how to move forward together. And I think that's really important. So I just deeply, I'm speaking for all the women at Northern and probably most of the men at Northern as well. Like we just deeply appreciate your scholarship in this area um, and how you have represented this conversation. It's such a blessing as a female student to be at a place like Northern um, that engages this topic in this way. So thank you. My pleasure. Yeah. Well, to our guests, we look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Thanks, everybody. 